You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. Hey friends, get your wheelchairs in a comfy position, your mobility aids, wherever you need them to be the most comfy, get the popcorn popping, and let's crack into it, because we are about to jump into a new episode of Popcorn and Power Chairs, right here on Disability After Dark. So, let's do the intro, and then let's crack into it. Watching content with carrots, popcorn, and power chairs. Well, friends, it's fall time, and what better thing to do in the fall time than to, you know, bemoan the start of almost winter, and then to also know that you can curl up with a comfy movie and just watch a comfy movie with us on Popcorn and Power Chair. So let's do that right now. One of my favorite genres of film is documentary. I love documentary films. I'm a nerd that way. I really love watching real-life stories of people, and I love learning about different things through the medium of documentary. It's one of my favorite things to watch, and I I just love them. I I watch them so many times. I have so many different docs that I look for, um, and I just really enjoy them. I find them really fascinating and interesting to learn about subjects and people that way. And I thought, for the fourth installment of Popcorn and Power Chairs, we'd explore a documentary on this show Now, you may remember that I, myself, I'm a documentary star. I was in a little movie called Picture This. Ever heard of it? You can download it now on Amazon Prime, wherever you are. All about sex and disability. It's great. So, buy it there. It's also on YouTube for free. So, if you want to watch it there, you can do that too. Um, So, I was in a little documentary. And because I've done documentary film, I love the medium. And I found one today through my local library, through Canopy and my local library, and I love the library so much. Friends, the free content at the library is so accessible and so amazing, and I'm going to do some more docs in this series from the library because I love them. Wow, the library is my favorite thing. Everyone should get a library card. It's amazing. Anyway, I found this documentary called Including Samuel, which chronicles the life of Samuel Habib, and is produced by Daniel Habib, a 20-year photojournalist who wanted to make a film about his son with with cerebral palsy. And what I love about this film is that it chronicles not only the family's journey, a, four, the, a four-year time span with their son from the time he was about, I think, seven to about 12 in this documentary, and it chronicles... Not only the family's relationship with their son, but also the father coming to terms with having a disabled son and also figuring out how to get their son to be included in the education system. And I really thought it was a really important question. It posits questions like, do we have integration 
or do we have inclusion? Or do we need inclusion for disabled kids to be okay? There's a lot of questions that this film brings to light, and they do it through the lens of the parent of a disabled child. And there was I had some issues with this film only speaking really and only kind of focusing on the parent's journey of having a disabled child and wanting to include their disabled child. But I thought it was really important, and I want to crack into it with you. So, let's uh, crack into the trailer of Including Samuel, and then we'll talk about the film. My name is Dan Habib. My wife Betsy and I have two boys, Isaiah and Samuel. When I became a photojournalist 20 years ago, I did a story on one of the first elementary schools in New Hampshire to try inclusion, or mainstreaming as it was called at the time. At Beaver Meadow Elementary, kids with disabilities began to join the same classrooms as kids without disabilities. Now my son goes to Beaver Meadow. He has a disability and I think about inclusion every day. When Samuel was a baby and we first started realizing that he might have a disability, I remember being really afraid because all the things you imagine for your child were things I was afraid about. How could he run around on the playground and play kickball when he couldn't run? How could he yak on the phone with his teenage friends when he has trouble talking? How could he get a full education and go to college when he can't hold a pencil. I just couldn't imagine beyond that, and I was very afraid for him and for us. I am Isaiah, Samuel's brother. He was born when I was about three years old. We love to watch like the Patriots games together. <laughs> you didn't get that, did you? <laughs> You didn't get that. Teddy Bruce, you We love to play tackle. I got you. No, actually, I got you. There's like there's sunlight streaming from his smile. Sammy likes spaceships. His favorite color is yellow. Does he like sunflowers? I like sunflowers. Those are Samuel's classmates, his friends. He's going to grow up with these kids. And they'll know him as Samuel, not the kid in the wheelchair. The film opens with home video of two boys. One, you can tell, is in a mobility aid right off the bat, and one is not in a mobility aid. And they're laughing and they're playing. And you can tell their family and you can tell their brothers. And... 
one of the boys is singing and laughing and just being a boy and being really funny. And you see Samuel and his brother in their kitchen just goofing around being brothers. And anyone with with cerebral palsy who sees Samuel right away, it's anyone with CP knows what CP looks like. We know what CP is right away. And anyone who is watching this film, if you're watching it on your computer right now, wherever it is you're watching, if you're following along, you can see that Samuel definitely has CP right away. Like, right away, I was like, oh, yeah, you're a cute CP kid for sure. And this first scene reminded me of my brothers, Alex and Quincy, when we were younger. We used to make home videos all the time with one another. We used to make each other laugh all the time. And there was there's video footage of me from, like, eight or nine onwards of us doing silly videos together. And it just brought back that for me. My brothers and I used to do that all the time. Um, we have loads and loads of family videos of us playing and being silly like that, but you can definitely tell in in this opening shot that one of the kids has CP. Then we get a voiceover of Samuel's mom expressing that when they found out that Samuel might have a disability, all their hopes for him, their hopes for him to play, to run on the playground, to to talk with friends on the phone, to have a normal, regular social life, quote-unquote normal, whatever normal is, were dashed. And they felt this this sense of loss because they knew that he wouldn't be like the other kids and that scared them. And the second I heard this, this is like within the first three minutes of this doc, and the doc's only an hour, but in the first three minutes we're already hearing from the parents. And the second I heard this, I, I immediately was like, oh no, what is this film going to be? Here we go again with these ableist parents saying all this stuff they don't understand. But then I thought about it some more, and I thought in this scene, hearing this mom express her fears, I felt it was so important because it shows how very little parents of disabled kids are initially educated about disability and about how to navigate these things. And I just, I, I shifted to thinking about how maybe they were ableist, but maybe they also just needed an education. And I think the fears that the parents have are valid of their, will their child have any, have, you know, proper experiences. And I think we don't hear those fear, those fears expressed openly enough. Um, and I, so I, I like that they included that in the film. And then within the first five minutes, we get a montage of Dan and a montage of the dad, the filmmaker, realizing that when he was growing up, he had one friend who had a problem with his ear. But he realized also that he didn't have a lot of other friends with visible disabilities in the classroom. And he didn't see many disabled kids in the classroom. And at this part, all I could think was, you didn't see disabled kids in the classroom. You didn't see any visible disabilities there. But it doesn't mean that they weren't there and they weren't happening to kids at the time. And I think we have to remember that when people say, I didn't see anybody with a disability... Whether they mean to or not, that can come off as a really super-duper ableist statement because there are kids with invisible disabilities, emotional disabilities, mental illness that we don't see that are just as valid and are also needing of support. So then Dan says that until he had his son Samuel, he would look at people with disabilities and he would see them and realize that they were not worthy of getting to know because... They couldn't talk or communicate the same. He believed that they weren't as smart, and therefore they weren't as valuable, and therefore he shouldn't be their friends. 
for get to know them. And I think that for him to put this in the film, and this film was only made in 2008, so it's only about 15 years old, and I think it's a really bold statement for him to put in the film because sentiments like that, that I didn't think they were smart, I didn't think they were valuable, I didn't think they were worth getting to know. So many people have these sentiments around people with disabilities and disabled folks, but they never say that quiet part out loud. And that's part of the reason why I think that ableism, that anti-ableism initiatives don't work, because we don't talk about people people's fears around disability. We don't give those room to, not to breathe, because I don't want to, I don't want to say we should allow for the fears to become reality, but I think we should talk about what those fears are. And for him to put it openly in the film and say, you know what, I was prejudiced. I believed so-and-so. It's really, it's really kind of harrowing to hear that because you're supposed to say, Oh, I, I see my kid like everybody else. And he was saying, no, no, I, I didn't see disabled people as valuable. And that's it's a big swing to take. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he said it openly. Because I think we need to say that quiet part out loud sometimes so that people can be educated and people can learn how wrong they are. One of the things that, that Dan does beautifully in this film is highlight the relationship between Samuel, who has CP, and his brother Isaiah. And I really, really enjoy seeing the video, the home videos of them interacting because we very rarely see disabled people and their siblings just being together and having time together and being a family. We don't often see that in film and we don't, we certainly don't see it in documentary style usually. So I was really happy to see that. Because you can see Samuel and Isaiah are so close, and they're definitely brothers, and they definitely love each other. And I think to see that on film, it's just, it struck a chord with me watching, because we don't often see it, and it's so valuable for the viewer to see two brothers, one able-bodied and one disabled, being brothers. And I, I just liked that a lot. I thought that was really important. So then Dan says in the film he's worried about how people will accept Samuel when he gets older and how will his life change when he gets older and will he be included as he gets older and will people accept Samuel or not. And Dan, I have to say to you this, if you're somehow, if you're listening to this, inclusion is really hard and being being included is really hard. I'm almost 40 and I'm constantly dealing with wanting to be included and wishing that I was also included and wishing that I had a place too. So Dan, I know you're still making films with Samuel. I know you just made a film with him recently. If you want to talk more about inclusion as he gets older, I would love to talk with you because I have thoughts. Um, and you know, I'm 40 and I'm constantly talking about inclusion and celebration of disability and all these things at 40. So... At the time they made this film, Samuel was like seven, and now he's now he's 22, and I'm still at 40 talking about this stuff. So it's a lot. Dan, if you're worried about how he's going to be treated later in life, this struggle will never end. It's never going to stop until we address our ableism, I think. Then from there, we meet Keith Jones, who is a black disabled recording artist who grew up in the 1970s and 80s with cerebral palsy. And I... Really like seeing this. I like seeing this representation. 
because I do believe, and I can speak from my from experience, disability is too white. We don't often see black disabled people talking about their experiences, especially on film. So I love to see this, and I kind of was watching, and I wanted to see Keith Jones be the lead of a documentary. I would love to hear his story as a black disabled person. Um, and so in this clip, he talks a lot about being put in a separate school when he was younger and being medicated and being given all these meds. And he talks about how he was never challenged to do more in school and how going to school felt like, felt more like daycare and more like an institution to him than it did school. And he would always say, well, I want to do things like math and I want to go to college and I want to have a wife. And people would say to him, well, that's nice, but that's not really for you. And so it just shows how, how, how exclusive education was for only able-bodied folks could have education. Disabled folks didn't get that. And Keith's story about feeling like he was in an institution in school proves that. I think so, anyway. Yeah, I wanted like five more, five more clips with with Keith Jones. I thought he was a really compelling character. Um, they they show him a few more times in the film, and we'll touch on it. But I wanted to see so much more with him. Really, really good character. Then we move back to Daniel and Samuel, and Dan says that he and Betsy, his wife, wanted to fix Samuel. They would always say, well, what did he do good today? Was 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 his was his spasticity good today? Was his learning good today? They would compare notes on how he was compared to the other kids. Um, and his mom would say, you know, I spent so much time doing his stretches and doing his exercise and doing all these things with him. I couldn't be his mother. I had to be his therapist. And I think that's very hard for the for parents of disabled kids to have to juggle that home care and it can be hard to sometimes be be the role of a parent, I think. And I know my mom and I had struggles with that where she would push me to do therapy and I would be like, I don't I I'll do it, but I also want you to be my mom. And so I definitely have I definitely understand from a disabled perspective what it's like to have your parent constantly trying to fix you and constantly trying to rehab you. And again, when my parents were raising me and my mom was raising me that's what they were taught to do, so I don't blame them for it. It's just what it was. And they talk, Daniel and, and Betsy talk about wanting to try to separate Samuel from his cerebral palsy. They wanted people to see him as a person and not just a person with CP. And to that I would say, Samuel can be a great person with CP. He doesn't have to be separated from his disability. And so... When Daniel went to meet disability rights activist Norman Kuntz, he realized that his views on disability were changed. And Norman Kuntz said in a talk that they filmed for the doc, he said that if somebody offered him a cure for cerebral palsy, he wouldn't take it because his disability is part of who he is and part of his history. And if suddenly he got cured... It would be like having to start all over again and to to see the world from a different vantage point than he does now. And I understand this sentiment a lot, and I understand why a lot of disabled people will say, oh no, I don't want to cure, I don't want to change my disability, especially those of us who were born disabled. 
don't want Akira, but I, you know, I also understand the idea of wanting to change your life and wanting Akira and wanting things to be different and wanting to be able to walk. And I think both experiences are valid and okay. One of the one of the criticisms that I have with this documentary, as I'm going over my notes, it really only spoke to the experience of the parents or the experience of the disabled child through the lens of the parents and through the lens of the the educational assistants and the people that were in the film. And I think it's important to have all that, but I wanted to see more of Samuel being a kid and more of Samuel growing up. And I think that's a lens that I would have liked to see more of. So then we see a home video of Daniel asking Samuel what he wants to be when he grows up. And in a very slow CP patterned speech, he says, I want to be an astronaut. And as I watched Samuel talk with his dad and have dreams about what he could be, I couldn't stop smiling because when I was six or seven, I remember wanting to be a Ghostbuster and wanting to be an astronaut and wanting to be a fireman and wanting to do all these things. And I just wanted to dream. And I think disabled kids deserve the chance to just dream. Even if it's totally not possible, they still deserve the chance to just decide that they want to do this thing. And I remember adamantly saying that I wanted to be a fireman, I wanted to be a policeman, I wanted to be a ghostbuster, I wanted to be all these things. And I just remember, remember wanting to just dream. And I think it was really cool to watch this little boy with severe CP, you know, say, I want to do all these things because it's, it's probably not possible, but his dream is possible. That's, that's okay for him to dream. And I think that's important. This documentary was produced in 2008, 2007, 2008, filmed over 2003 to 2007, I think. So only about 20 to 17 years ago. And we hear his mom say, I want people to see him as a full person and as not just the boy in the chair. And it's astounding to me that 15 years on in 2023 and well into 2024 and 2025 and 2026, I'm sure, we're still going to be having these conversations and people are still going to be saying, I want my disabled child to be seen as a person. How upsetting is it that we're still having these conversations and you know the way she says it makes it sound like the films in the 80s but actually it was only created in in 07 so really not that long ago and it's disturbing to think that in 15 years from now in 2038 we'll still probably be having these conversations and it's a shame that we didn't weren't so far behind in truly how we think about disabled people and how we think about inclusion. And then we have another scene where we go back to Keith Jones, and he's he's walking around outside, and he talks about how in 1981, when he went to school, high school, I think the sixth grade, he had support of special education staff, but he was also allowed to mingle in the school with his friends and be without staff. And he says, the key is being able to have the support available to you, but also to be your own person. And so many schools with disabled, with disabled students 
need to think about this. You need to let the student have their own lives. And you need to let the student need support when they need support and don't need support when they don't need support. And so he talks about how he he was able to just be his friends, be with his friends and do his own thing. But when he needed support, support was there. And that was in the 80s. So we've had these educational things around for a long time, but they're never really talked about. Um, and I, when I was in school, in high school, from 99 to 03, I luckily had an educational, educational assistant named Brian, who was, became a really good friend of mine. We still talk occasionally. Um, he understood that if I needed him, he'd be there for me. But if I wanted to go be with my friends, he'd let me be my own self. He let me do my thing. And to his credit, he also really helped me grow up. He really made sure that I was okay in school. He protected me when I needed to. He he guided me when I was doing something silly that I shouldn't be. He really helped me grow into who I am today. And his humor and kindness really helped me shape my time at school. So I was very lucky to have an EA that understood that I was a young man growing up into this world. And I needed... Uh, I needed my space to do that, but I also needed support. Then we meet Alana Malfi, whose mother tells us that she was told her daughter would be institutionalized at the age of five and that she was a freak of nature. The doctors actually told her that her daughter would be a freak of nature. Who even says that? That's horrible. Alana is about 12, and she's older than Samuel, and she's in in high school, and she tells the camera, it isn't easy getting along with people. I think she has some intellectual disabilities and possibly physical disabilities, but we, they didn't say what it was she had. So the documentary then posits whether inclusion is easier when a disabled child is younger or when they're older, and I think that it's easier when a disabled child is younger because they haven't been indoctrinated with prejudice yet. They haven't been met with prejudice yet. They don't know what it is. They just know that they want somebody to be included. And they may have questions, but they haven't been in, they haven't been met with that significant prejudice just yet. And so Atlanta is in a special school in called the Pembroke Academy, which is somewhere in Massachusetts, I think, um, that pairs non-disabled students with students with significant disabilities, and they both learn the same curriculum. So if you're going to learn about Romeo and Juliet, then Alana and the other disabled students would also learn about Romeo and Juliet. A teacher says that when she started doing this work and with this integration, she had no training on how to teach a disabled student with complex disabilities, formally or informally. And this is where I think, I, Andrew, think that inclusion breaks down. Teachers need training on what ableism is, what disability is, and they need a space to confront their own biases properly. And I, I this is where I feel like if you put a bunch of disabled kids and non-disabled kids in a room, and you don't give the teacher the tools to teach the disabled kid and the tools to understand their own biases around disability, 
they're not going to do inclusion very well at all. And then they have a bunch of scenes where the students express that before they had this program, there was a boundary between themselves and disabled students, and there was a definite boundary there. But now they're peers. We hear a bunch of students say, yeah, now we're friends, and now we hang out, and now it's great. Um, and now they're peers. And so we see how they're trying to say, look, everyone's included here. We're all going to do the same thing. And the schools wonder if by having having the non-disabled and disabled students together, are they are they making progress or not? And they suggest that money is a big factor in inclusion. Usually when they're trying to design inclusive curriculum, the disabled students get left out because of money, usually. And so I just was like, yep, that's usually what happens. The disabled students are the ones who have their education on the chopping block because the state doesn't want to fund special education or doesn't want to fund enhanced curriculum for disabled students because it costs too much or their needs cost too much. That happens all the time. Then we see that Samuel uses a vocal board in class, which is like a talking box that talks to you um, because it's difficult for him and his CP to communicate all the time. And I think that it was really important to see this kind of mobility aid in the documentary and I just to see how Samuel communicates. And when you watch him communicate with his vocal board, he's doing it like it's second nature. He's doing it like there's no big deal, and he's simply having a conversation. And I love that, and I think it's important for the audience to see imagery like that um, and to see, oh, wow, this is how somebody who who has trouble verbalizing could communicate. Wow, this is important. And I think we don't see that enough. We then see a montage of Samuel being included in the classroom with an educational assistant, and we hear his dad say, we did everything that we could to keep him in the classroom so his friends wouldn't think he didn't belong. And this got me thinking about when I was in elementary school. When I was in like grade six, seven, eight, um, they would constantly bring the OT and PT into my classroom and take me out of the classroom and take me away from my friends to go to OT and PT. And I hated that because... They'd always come at the most fun part of the day when something really cool and fun was happening. They'd be like, oh, we're here to do this. And I would be so annoyed. It's like 10-year-old me would be like, I just want to be with my friends. What are you doing? Um, And so I I just remember that as a kid being really, um, being really annoyed whenever I had to go do OT or PT and be away from my friends. Then we have one of the teachers who's helping Samuel talk about why she doesn't like the term wheelchair-bound and how it infuriates her because for Samuel, she sees as his teacher that Samuel uses the wheelchair for freedom. And a kid from Samuel's class is interviewed for a minute and talks about how he loves it when Samuel uses his wheelchair because he does zooms across the room. And I, I loved seeing these unfiltered interviews with these six, seven, eight-year-olds, peers of Samuel who are not disabled, learning about disability. I love seeing this because you see them 
try to figure it out and try to include him and try to figure out the right language and try to figure out how to talk about him. And I think it was really important to include them because with their understanding, he'll be properly included. And so to see how these six, seven, eight-year-olds are learning to include Samuel in their classroom was really, 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 really vital for the audience to see, I think. Then we pop back to Keith Jones for a minute, who makes a very important point, and he says, you know, when people see me as a black man in a wheelchair, they assume that because I'm black, I must have become disabled through an accident, through gun violence, through through some sort of violence. I must be a gangbanger. And I think this is a really important point and something we have to consider. When we look at a black person with a physical disability, do we assume that they became paralyzed because of violence? And if if we do, we really have to interrogate how racism plays a role in how we look at that. He also talks about the racism connected to the education system that he was never expected to learn. He was never expected to go anywhere because he was black and disabled. And I think those are really salient points and things we need to address more in our understanding of inclusion, our understanding of black disabled kids in the education system. We need to consider that properly. Then we meet another disabled parent who talks about her autistic child and going through education, and she talks about how you mourn who they aren't going to be. And I think that we also need to talk about how you mourn from the from the perspective of a disabled person later in life. I mourn so many things that I can't do. I mourn my disability all the time, and I think it's not just the parents mourning what their child can't do. The disabled person will mourn what they can't do in their own way, and I think we need to find ways to move that narrative of mourning away from the, oh no, my child's disabled, into how does the disabled person feel about their loss of function, or feel about their loss of inclusion, or feel about their loss of celebrating who they are as a disabled person in their life as an older person. I would love to see a documentary explore that, too. Then we meet... Principal Joe Petner, who's the principal of the Haggerty School, and he's the principal of a school that is fully integrated between disabled and non-disabled students. He kind of looks like, uh, I would say he looks like Einstein, very bushy hair. Einstein is what I, when I noticed when I looked at him, he had a really, like, cool 80s mustache, totally rocking the 80s mustache and like, the, in the aughts, in the 07, yeah, he was totally rocking that. Um, he looked kind of funny. Uh, he talks about how te the teachers need to be invested in their students and invested to want to learn and want to to grow their learning to understand disabilities because you can't ask a teacher to simply have disabled students in the room with no context for that. And I think that's very true. Joe Petner says something really important in the documentary that I want to highlight. He says that inclusion is an easy thing to do poorly. And I love this quote because it's so true. Inclusion is an easy thing to do poorly. And I can't tell you how right he is about that. 
so many inclusion initiatives are done poorly, and you want to know why? Because they don't include people with disabilities in the planning process for inclusion. You need to have people who are disabled in your planning for inclusion to have proper inclusion. And I think that disabled people don't really want to only be included. I believe that we want to be celebrated too. We deserve to be celebrated also. And so you shouldn't just include disabled people. You should celebrate them too. But yes, I agree with his initial statement that inclusion is such a buzzword today. It's really easy to do it poorly. And when he said this, I was like, wow, you're great. I totally agree with you. You're so right. Then we have Dan say that Samuel and Isaiah are incredibly close, in part because of Samuel's disability. And I feel that way with my brothers, Alex and Quincy. I feel that because of my disability, they were... They had to help me out a lot with different things, and they had to learn about how to help me use the bathroom and how to help me do certain things. And I really um, value that, and I really feel like we've we are close as brothers because I'm disabled a little bit, and I am thankful for that. So then Betsy, Samuel's mom, talks about a little bit about how disability is hard on the parents as a couple, all the stressors they have as a couple and I think those stressors need to be talked about from a married couple's perspective. I'd love to hear more about this because we don't hear about it very often. We don't hear about how does a married couple with a disabled child navigate the costs, the stressors, the hospital stays, the connection, the intimacy between themselves. How do they do all that? And I think it's really important that we talk about that and we look at that. I want to know the ins and outs of a disabled child on a relationship simply because in my experience, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe there's stuff that I haven't read yet, but in my experience, this connection to, to disability in a couple's relationship, having a disabled child and being a non-disabled couple, how does it impact your relationship? And I think that needs to be explored way more in, in um, couples, discussions, marriage, family, that kind of stuff. Betsy talks about how Samuel's health and disability have impacted the family staying in touch and being with other family. And she said that some family won't come see them anymore and they don't talk as much because they're dealing with Samuel's stuff. And I think that all disabled people can speak to that feeling of friends and family dropping off and not really being there for you because they don't understand the strain you're under trying to navigate all these things. I certainly know that that it's hard for me to maintain friendships because I'm dealing with my health all the time. And I know what it's like to just be like, you know what, I'm not going to worry about it because it's too hard for me to worry if you're going to show up or not. So I'm not even going to bother. I, I know that as a disabled person, but I can imagine from a family perspective what it's like to have to say, oh no, we can't come to that event because Samuel needs us or we can't come to this thing because we have to take care of Samuel's health, or he's in the hospital. I can imagine the stress that would have on a family. They also talk about something important in the documentary, which is when Samuel is sick, he needs more attention than his brother, and it can take attention away from Isaiah, the brother, and 
it's important for this point is important because it's important for siblings, non-disabled siblings of disabled siblings to remember this. We don't always want the attention we're getting when we're sick. Isaiah says in the documentary, oh, when I, when Samuel's sick, he gets all the attention. Remember, he doesn't want the attention. He needs the attention to be okay. There's a huge difference between wanting attention and needing attention. I think when you're disabled, you know that feeling intimately. And so when they say, when, when Isaiah says Samuel gets sick and then he gets all the attention, no, 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 he needs the attention. Big difference. Then the film shifts in the last 20 minutes to meeting Emily Huff, who's a young girl at this point with, I think she's college age in the documentary, so she's like 20. But she talks about living with schizophrenia and living with mental illness and how often she would go into fantasy worlds or go into psychoses and have all these troubles. And so she... Talks about how she has no supports. And then content warning. She talks about how she tried multiple times to unalive herself. Because the school didn't give her supports. The school didn't give her um, assistance in any way. And she was so depressed. She tried to commit suicide. And so because of this. She was transferred to a private program for kids with mental illness. And this is the part of the documentary where they're suggesting, does inclusion always work? And does full integration always work? Or should we have programs whereby there are separate programs for disabled kids or mentally ill kids or non-disabled kids to get the care they need that is not integrated? And I was curious about this, and I thought about it some more. And I, I wonder, you know, myself... Are there moments where integration and inclusion initiatives don't work and you need that segregation and you need that separate space for the disabled kid to grow and learn away from the stressors of non-disabled life? And I wonder, I was torn when I finished watching the doc because I wasn't sure. I was like, do we need inclusion? the way it is, or do we have to figure out a way to have inclusion and integration along with, not segregation, but some sort of different programs as well? And I think we do. I really think the two can go hand in hand, but we can't, we can't call it segregation. We have to find a way to, to allow it to be integrated, but also give space for the disabled student to be with their peers or or by themselves if they need it. It is it is awfully complicated, and I think it goes a lot deeper than just putting all the kids together with inclusion. Um, I think that kids are kids are unique, and you have to find the right point for each of us to be okay. And if one kid needs to be in a separate classroom and one kid wants inclusion, that's okay. Both should be available to them. So Emily graduated from this private high school and now she advocates for young people with mental illness, at least at the time of 2007. And then we see Samuel's mom again, 
saying that since I had Samuel, I see that the world is not very welcoming. I see that that everything is a civil rights issue now, and I didn't see it before, and I can't believe that others didn't see it either. And so she talks quite openly about how now that she's had Samuel, her worldview shifted, and I kind of love those moments because both her and her and Dan in the film talk about how, how having Samuel in their lives has shifted their perspective in the world. And I love I love those light bulb moments. Those light bulb moments for people are very, very important. What, what it shows is that disabled people are great to have in your life and you should have more of them because we're great. We change your worldview and that's a huge, powerful thing we get to do. And I'm so grateful that I get to be one of the people that does that. And then we go back to Keith for a minute, who says, you know, we are, we need accessibility everywhere, and disability is one of the one of the last key civil rights things we have to work on. And he says, you know, when people get old, they're not going to say they're disabled, but they're still going to need ramps, and they're still going to need wheelchairs, and they're still going to need glasses. And he says, the quote he said that I love so much, he said, when the baby boomers come in, they won't be disabled, but they're still going to need a ramp to get their ass in the house. And I thought that was hilarious, because he's right. And we're, no, we're not calling old age disability, but it is. There's a linkage between the, between the two worlds, and we need to talk about it way more, and he's right. So then we see that Keith gets married to his wife, which I love seeing this. I love seeing disabled people get married. But I wonder if Keith needs Social Security, Social SSI. I wonder if he needs SSI. And I wonder if, you know, if they had to do anything to ensure he got SSI or if he's okay. Because seeing him get married in the film right at the end, I was like, oh, this is great. But also a lot of disabled folks can't get married. And so I wonder, I just wonder what his status is with SSI. Um, and then we just see Dan talk about how he wants Samuel to be included, and he hope he gets in, he is included for most of his life. Um, and then the film ends, and I looked up the, Dan and Samuel afterwards. Samuel is now twenty two, and has made a film with his dad called My Disability Roadmap, which I haven't been able to find, but I wanna I wanna watch it maybe for another episode of Popcorn and Power Chairs. They do public speaking all over all over the states about um, Samuel's experience and Daniel's experience being his dad. And I thought that was really cute and really important for them to have such a great connection together. Overall, I would give this film 3.9 power chairs out of 5. I like that the film offered a lot of questions around education and inclusion and into integration that many of us don't have the answer to, but also many of us don't even think about this until we're faced with it ourselves. So I like that the documentary went there quite readily to talk about all this stuff. I wanted to see more of Samuel just being a kid, and I wanted to, to hear more from him directly. But I think because of his CP and the difficulty he had actually vocalizing, I think that's why they didn't. I, I'm curious to see what the new documentary, My Disabled, My Disability Roadmap, will be like for him in terms of him being the subject so i'd love to i'd love to get my hands on that and if daniel and samuel are listening somehow i'd love to 
to watch your film and review it or have you on the show also. I'd love that as well. But um, yeah, I really like this documentary. You can get it if you haven't, if you just listen to this one, you can get it at um, your local library through Canopy. Really, really good. Really, really quick doc, about an hour. Super easy to sit through, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I loved doing docs, so if you want me to do a documentary, um, let me know. Let me know another documentary that I should do. You know, I've already done Crib Camp and a few docs, but I'd love to do more disability themed docs. So if you have one that you want me to do, let me know. This has been another episode of Popcorn and Power Chairs, and we'll see you next week for episode 339 of the main show, Disability After Dark, and episode 5 of Popcorn and Power Chairs in two weeks, friends. Thanks so much for uh, for listening. And um, write in to andrew at com and let me know what kind of movies you want me to do. Somebody said that I should do the Insidious trilogy because that has disability representation somewhere, they said, so I might do that. I might also do the new Little Mermaid because there's disability stuff in there too. Um... So we'll see, but uh, I was really excited to do this one, really glad to do a doc, Um, and if you haven't watched it, go watch, including Samuel, on Canopy. Alright friends, I'm going to do the outro. Thanks for um, doing popcorn Popcorn and Power Chairs with me. Have a good one, and we'll see you next week. Bye!